Blog Talk Radio. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to another episode of the Good Life Podcast with Mike Safosnik. Thankfully, the weather here in New York City, around 50 degrees, this horrendous snow will be uh, melted shortly. Judging by the guests I've had on the show recently, I guess it's pretty easy to notice my three biggest passions. Sports, which uh, led to Chris Canty the other night. Travel, Lee Abamante, all the time. And reading, I just had Joseph Wambog on, the author of The Onion Field, and The Blooding, just to name a few. Uh, my show can now be found on iTunes by searching Mike Sappho. Every year, the past, I guess, three or four years, my goal is to read 52 books in 52 weeks. I try to read all different genres, but I'm pretty partial to nonfiction books. Once I finish a book, my OCD kicks in, and I'm so engrossed in the book. I want to learn more. I want to hear more about it, read court transcripts, watch documentaries on it, and that's why I'm beyond excited to have tonight's guest on. In 2008, the nation was obsessed with the disappearance of a two-year-old girl named Kaylee Anthony. A few years later, the entire country were glued to their television sets every minute watching the trial of her mother, Casey Anthony. I remember I was on vacation in Ocean City, Maryland, and my mom kept calling me, basically telling me to get out of the ocean to see if Casey was going to testify and give her updates on the case. Um, today's guest wrote such an incredibly detailed book about the disappearance and then the murder uh, of Kaylee Anthony that I had to have her on. Welcome to the show, author of Mommy's Little Girl, the uber-talented author, Diane Fanning. Diane, good morning. Welcome to the show. Good morning, Mike. How are you today? Very good. Now, before we get into the book totally, why was this case different and, I guess, take on a life of its own? The people, like I said earlier, were obsessed with every aspect and every character of the show, uh, of the story. What was that about? Well, you look at uh, the pictures of little Kaylee from the time she first went missing, and how could you not be drawn in? She was such a lovely little child, and the videos they, that they showed of her, they seemed so sweet, and it's so hard to imagine that anybody would want to harm a child like that. And then on top of that, some of the things that Casey Anthony was saying was just stretched your credulity very, very quickly. I, You know, I followed the case from the very beginning, and it was the day after her arrest that I got a contract to write about the case. And I wanted to know what happened to that little girl. And I wanted to know if a woman who was so young and seemed to have a whole future together and, and, and moving in the right direction could really have been someone who would commit a horrific crime. And day by day, the evidence against Casey Anthony seemed to be mounting up. And it was very intriguing to follow this case. Now, then, that's there was a ask. lot of... Yeah? I, I, yeah, I want to ask you that because you said you got the contract. When did you... I guess you can say become involved in the case. And what made you want to write the book before she went to trial? That really intrigued me while I was reading it. 
Well, you know, that is, for a writer, that is the publisher's prerogative. And um, it, it's if you accept a contract, you pretty much have to deliver when the publisher says you, you need to deliver. And my publisher was not interested in waiting for the trial if I could get together the information uh, in advance of a trial. And there was so much available. There, were so, there was so much science available, and it was easy to follow the trail of the forensic evidence and reach the only logical conclusion, which was that Casey Anthony killed her own daughter. Now, the book starts off with, and I, you did a great job with it, all the lies and inconsistencies of, like, every aspect of Casey's life. Can you talk about a little bit about that and her upbringing with the constant lying that was always going on her entire life? It is almost as if she was compelled to lie, that if um, even the truth would serve her well, she would lie. Her brother pointed that out. Uh, it, sometimes life would be easier if she simply told the truth, but... She kept wanting to um, stretch the truth to the point it became total lies. And she uh, lied to her parents about uh, graduating from school. She knew she wasn't going to graduate from high school. She knew that just wasn't going to happen. But when did she tell her parents? On graduation night and not before. I mean, really? You should have known this was going to come out. I mean, when you didn't go marching up and getting diploma like everybody else. But no, she waited to the very, very last minute. She lied about who Kaylee's father was to the point that nobody knows uh, who the father was. And, you know, there's um, she lied to her brother about where she was and where she was going. She lied to her parents about having jobs she didn't have. Uh, she just built up a repertoire of lies that had more depth and complexity than her real life. And, Diane, you know what I found? There's two ironic parts in the book. I always found it so ironic that Casey always lied to her mother, and then the graduation story, Sydney never told her own mother that Casey wasn't graduating. It just seemed that lying was accepted in the family. Is that... Is that like a consistent thing I'm saying? Well, it seemed like that um, Casey's mother would forgive her of anything. There was always, no matter what she did, there was always a good excuse or a good reason for it. Uh, she enabled her daughter very much to continue on this path. I do believe that uh, her father had pretty much um, gotten tired of it and and suspected things and and there was at one point where he even publicly uh made statements about the doubt that uh his daughter was innocent but then cindy the mother pulled back on that and it was clear that she had a certain sway over the whole household and when she insisted that he go along with the, the story that Casey was totally in, innocent. He went along to get along with his wife. But his heart wasn't there. In the very beginning, he expressed his concerns to the police that his daughter had done something horrible. And um, that is why, I believe, 
that the defense put him up and pilloried him and tried to point the finger of blame at him. But they offered no evidence in the trial, none at all, that said that. Unfortunately, the jury took what Antifoni said and made it into evidence in their minds. And they had doubts about George. And I think they were unfounded and totally fueled by defense um, speculation about other possibilities. Now, Diane, you mentioned the pregnancy. Two, a two-pronged question with that. I don't think we ever really did find out who the father was. And when it was so obvious to everyone that Casey was pregnant, why, and it's hard to ask why when we didn't speak to Cindy, but why was she still denying it and Cindy believing it? Did she truly believe everything Casey told her, that she wasn't pregnant when everyone in the world saw her stomach and everyone knew she was pregnant? I, I think that Cindy was a, is a little strange, and she, um, she was very good at making herself, and it may have all been subconscious, but she was very good at making herself believe what she wanted to believe. And when Casey came up with that story of some sort of gynecological problem, Cindy grabbed it and she could, because she wanted to believe it. She didn't want to believe that her daughter was about to have a child out of wedlock. She wanted to believe that what Casey said was true. And that was her problem with her daughter all along. She always wanted to believe the best about her. She never gave Casey an honest assessment in her own in Cindy's own mind. It was always colored by her maternal feelings, and she seemed unable to grasp the reality of who or what she was dealing with. Now, that was a great background on Casey and the family, the enabling of the lying. Now, take us to the actual, I guess... I guess you could say first clue in the disappearance when George and Cindy get that letter in the mail. Can you just bring the audience up to date? They get a letter in the mail about the impounded car and the smell. Can you take us to that big part of the whole story? Yes. The, the, um, it, was, it was very strange because, to their knowledge, their daughter was miles and miles away up near Tampa with the vehicle. And they're getting a letter saying it's right there, the vehicle's right there in town in an impound lot. And uh, the letter was put uh, by the front door, which they never used to go in and out of the house. They always went out in and out of the back, like a lot of people do. And um, when they just accidentally happened to see it there, it... It was it was shocking, and it had been there for a couple of days, and and they couldn't understand it, and it didn't seem like it could be true. And George, though, I think had a big sense of boating when he headed over to that lot, and he was afraid of what he would find, and he was even afraid to open the trunk of the car that. There was a thought in his mind that his granddaughter might be in there. And uh, he got the man at the lot to go back there with him. And he drove that car back, and he had to keep the windows rolled down because it smelled so bad. Now, he used to be a deputy sheriff. 
he knew the smell of death. He knew that was what he was smelling. And he took the car home, fearing the worst. Now, from there on, with this smell, and you always, you described it perfectly in the book, with the smell, he knew that there was a body in there at one point. Now, from there, her parents, <clears throat> her brother Lee, they're questioning her hard that night in the, in the house. They're demanding to see their granddaughter. Casey comes up with a lie about the nanny working for Universal Studios. And even when the cops become involved, she continues to lie on numerous occasions. How can one ever explain that? Oh, that was just so baffling. Um, <clears throat> I think she kept, she really kept expecting the cops to react as her mother would. And that is, they go, oh, well, if you're willing to take us there, then you obviously must be telling the truth. Let's go on home and stop wasting our time. But she walked them, she argued onto the studio lot, and it was only because police were with her that they eventually allowed it. And then she walked them up to where she said she worked, which wasn't even true. And how she thought she was going to pull that off, I think she just felt if she was brazen enough, they would back down. But they didn't. And they realized that she wasn't working there. They realized that um, the places that she directed them to go to to find Danita Gonzalez, uh, really had no connection with anyone of that name. One of them, in fact, was um, a uh, assisted living facility, and she was just piling one lie on top of the other. In the mistaken impression, if she gave enough information and appeared to be cooperating, they would just say, okay, little girl, go on home. It was absolutely ridiculous. It's completely mind-boggling. And now at this point, she's missing. The police bring in different cadaver dogs. And did they get, I'm, I'm trying to remember from the book, did they get a positive hit from the trunk and from the backyard of a dead body? They got a positive hit from the trunk. Both dogs did. There was a spot in the backyard where one of the dogs got a positive hit. But actually, um, and that could have been, a place where she set the body down while she was putting it, waiting to get it out in the car. We're not sure about that, whether those were false hits or not. But they both went absolutely nuts over the trunk of the car. And and still, you know, she kept insisting that she had nothing to do with her daughter's disappearance, that she was out there on her own like this great crusader trying to find her daughter and find out what Zaneda had done with her daughter. Now, Diane, it seems, and you, again, did it perfectly, how she stole money and lied to everyone, her friends, her parents, her grandmother. Those are like the signs yeah. of a drug addict. Was there any ever evidence that she had an addiction problem to drugs or alcohol that maybe contributed to any of this behavior, lying and stealing? You know, she, uh, she she did do some drugs, but I I really do think it was purely recreational. I don't think she was addicted to drug use. Um, I think she was addicted to her sense of self-importance and entitlement 
and I I don't think that there there was any kind of addiction issue to a substance. Um, she was just uh, as as I the best I could determine an a malignant narcissist who only had concern for how things would work out for her, not for the life, the feelings, or anything of another human being. I loved in the book how you always brought it back to the focal point of Kaylee. So now Kaylee's missing now for 31 days, I believe. Casey's yes. finally, finally arrested. The uh, search continues for the body with so many organizations and people volunteering their time. Why do you think that with all these signs pointed towards Casey being the only real suspect, did Sydney and George continue to, I guess, publicly defend her to the point where it became laughable to the entire public? Remember, the public was so behind them in the beginning, and then that kind of, like, wavered because it was becoming comical that they were defending her. Why was that? It wasn't just becoming comical. It was becoming... um a very angry and volatile situation. Um, people, I think, understand if someone in your family or a close friend has committed a horrible crime, your first inclination is to not want to believe it. And you try your best to find your explanations. So for a short time, the attitude of um, Casey's parents was understandable, but then they kept it up in the face of all the evidence that didn't add up to her innocence. And they just would not let go of it. And I think that's when the public turned against them because they seemed more interested in protecting their daughter than in the life of their own granddaughter. Now, how long was it that Kaylee was missing completely until she was found? It was months, and the, um, about roughly five and a half months. And part of the problem was that where her body was left, there had been flooding. And so uh, it, it was underwater for an amount of time, and all the people searching couldn't even go into that area, even though it was close to the home and looked like a possibility of a place that you would dump a body. But they couldn't get into it because of the floodwaters. I mean, they even tried with four-wheel drive vehicles, and they just they get mired down because the mud was so thick because there had been so much uh, water in the area. And it, it it just was really tragic because if they could have found Kaylee sooner, they would have been able to preserve some evidence that was, uh, when they did find it, long lost. When I was getting so frustrated reading the book, uh, Casey's in jail, she's getting visitors, her parents, and she was playing the victim card. Does that just show the type of personality she is. It's only about her, her, me, me, because her daughter's missing, subsequently found, and yet she still only cared about herself, who she can call in prison, how bad they were treating her. Does that just show the kind of person she is? Yes, because it wasn't just, you know, poor, poor me. 
it was like she was so harsh with her parents who were standing by her side despite the evidence and they were there supporting her and she was angry at them because they were thinking about the trouble they were going through at times and they weren't solely solely focused on her distress or discomfort with being in jail it it was you know you think your strongest supporters would be people that you'd want to show endless empathy for the situation you've put them in even if you didn't commit the crime you know i i'd find myself apologizing over and over again to the people that were inconvenienced by what i caused even if I were missing. But she never showed any of that. She clearly displayed um, strong signs of narcissism. And she never, never let go of those. I, You know, when it finally came to trial, you know, she didn't care the hurt that she inflicted on her father. She didn't care. Just let it roll. Blame him. As long as I get free, nothing matters. I'm so glad you just brought up the trial because the entire world, and I believe in the book, you not that you hinted on it, but we all kind of knew it. It was a ground ball case, which we think. There's never a ground ball case with a jury. We know that. But she was so obviously guilty. How did she possibly get off? Is there any justification? And can you even describe how she got off? Well, I, you know, the best indicator of that is by listening to the things that the jury said after the trial. And many of them said they had some doubt because of George. Now, as I said, there was no evidence implicating George in the situation at all. There was none presented at trial. But there were the opening statements and the closing statements of the attorneys. And even though the jury is not supposed to consider them evidence, it seems as if the jury in this case did so. And when you're looking at um, at that at that situation, you know that's why defense attorneys say things. But sometimes it backfires. Sometimes if a defense attorney promises to prove something and then doesn't do it, the, the jury will hold it against them. But this jury didn't. They came to a decision, and part of it was I do not think they really understood the um, scientific evidence as presented on the stand. And what they should have done if they didn't understand it is ask to see the scientific documents, the reports, that's part of the trial record. They are, they are entitled to look at those, but they didn't ask for any of those. And that just perplexed me. And then to hear some of the jury say, well, I was really sure she did it, but the state didn't prove their case. My opinion was that they did prove their case. But if I were sitting on a jury where I was certain someone had committed a crime and they said the 11 other jurors sitting there with me said I'm not seeing the proof 
I swear to you, at that point, I would have gone ahead and voted against the majority. I would have hung the jury before I allowed someone whose guilt I was certain of to walk out of that courtroom. Now, Diane, you actually led me to my next question. My next question was going to be, was the defense that good and the prosecution that bad? You just said the prosecution was pretty good. Was the defense that good, or do you blame this a lot on the, on the jury, sadly? I think that the defense, um, and I've seen this many times, I think the defense went too far. And uh, was they promised things they did not deliver. They um, knew they weren't going to be able to deliver it, and yet they promised it. To me, that it makes me question the ethics behind that. I I know that the defense is supposed to do the best they can to defend someone, whether they're guilty or not. But sometimes they push too far and too hard and go and say things in the courtroom that I think they know are lies. And that's where the ethical question comes in. If a defense attorney gets up there and says, Here's my point A. And they honestly believe that is true or a distinct possibility. That's one thing. But when they get up and say, here's my point A, and they know in their heart of hearts that they're lying, they shouldn't be doing that. One, and that is my suspicion in this case. Okay. Now, Diane, one shady thing that bothered me with Sydney is that I think the police and, and, and please correct me if I'm wrong. The police wanted Kaylee's hairbrush, and Sydney gave, like, I think you mentioned in the book, the wrong hairbrush. Can you elaborate on that? Because that part, I don't know, it, it struck a chord with me. Like, why would Sydney enable that or try to help her daughter at this point? Can you elaborate on the hairbrush story? Yeah, I think that she did that intentionally to confuse the gathering of evidence. I think that she... um it may not have been a conscious decision on her part, unless you get in, can literally get in someone's head. You don't know. It could have been subconscious, but she was um, she was letting her maternal instinct run amok in this whole case. She would not listen to logic. She would not look at facts. She would twist and turn everything in any way she could. Did she intentionally and with forethought give them? the wrong hairbrush, maybe. But maybe it was subconsciously motivated. Um, and I imagine that had law enforcement felt that they could prove she did it with intention, they might have brought charges against her. I don't know. The, the person that found Kaylee, I remember something about him being considered quote-unquote suspicious. Was there anything shady about the person who found Kaylee? Oh, you know, I think a, a lot was made of that by the defense, and they tried to paint him as a... You know, here's what I... My theory on that was. Not that he... Um, I, I think that he was going back 
and back to that place and looking at it multiple times for one reason. He wanted to be a hero. And that place where Kaylee was ultimately found was a spot that it seems to me because of its geographical location and its topography would be a natural assumption that this is where a body could be found. And that's why I think he kept going there. He really wanted to be the hero of the day. And so uh, it wasn't so much finding Paley that was driving him, but it was his own personal ambition. He wanted to be that person who, you know, found the little girl. And, you know, yeah, that that that's a, a slight weakness in character. But, you know, it's nothing compared to what was done to that child. I'm so happy you're joining me because there's a couple of other questions that always, I guess, irked me, and I wanted to know, how did the defense possibly, I guess, get around the three, well, there's a million lies, but the fake nanny story, the 31 days of her reporting, the fake universal job, all her lies, how did the defense get around that and beat that? Well, they kept, you know, um, beating on that drum that, some juries don't respond to that uh, just because, you know, you, you often see it in, in uh, spousal murders. Just because he'd been beating his wife for five years, that doesn't mean he ultimately killed her. Or just because he was cheating on his wife, that doesn't mean he killed his wife. And they were using that kind of reasoning, that just because she's a nasty little liar and she's been proven to be a liar, that doesn't prove she's a murderer. And... That combined with the suspicion they threw on Casey's father, um, clouded, I think, clouded the judgment of the jurors. I mean, you know, we're not perfect. We're human beings. And the jury wasn't perfect because they were human, too. And sometimes juries find innocent people guilty, and sometimes juries find guilty people innocent. It's just the way the system works because we are human. One thing that's always not funny, but after something like this happens, the family or the subjects always in the news and the Anthony's have been like, I guess, low profile. Do you have any update on them? Because I guess after the book, you become engrossed in the story. Obviously, you had to. You, you're the author of this book. You're speaking so passionately about it. Is there any update on the Anthony's or what they're doing? I really um, do not know. I, they, they have been extremely quiet. And, um, you know, for a while I tried to find out. But, you know, that, was, that book came out, um, well, it'll be eight years ago this year. So... Uh, and 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 I haven't heard anything in recent years at all, and I think they just don't want to be out in the public at all, and they're continuing their lives. And to the best of my knowledge, George and Cindy are still together. That's incredible. Now, have we, did we ever find out who the father was? Time no. Ever come, oh, that's so sad. That's tragic, isn't it? Yes, yes, and um, I kept thinking uh, between the time I wrote the book and the trial 
that someone might step forward thinking it was his child and demand justice for his child. But, you know, there's a possibility that the father was this, it was a guy that from Tennessee that was killed in an automobile accident. Uh, the only people ruled out from being the father were um, Casey's father, Casey's brother, and Casey's, Casey's boyfriend at the time. Those three were all ruled out and considered not suspects. In so, your opinion, uh, because that, of the DNA. No, Diane. In your opinion, will there be maybe a well a follow up book? Might be silly because you kind of nailed every point that happened. But do you see a Casey Anthony Anthony interview coming anytime soon? Because the truth, her name still pings interest. Anytime her name comes up, everyone comes out. Is there? a book deal or anything with her to financially support herself? And how is she even getting by? I think there's a big problem with Casey and getting, um, getting uh, her story, telling her story. And that is no one that I've ever encountered actually expects her to ever tell the truth. I mean, yeah, at this point she's been tried and found not guilty. She could not be tried again, mm-hmm. but, um, She's all. She is. She has been for a long time the most hated woman in America, and that has faded somewhat now that she's done everything she can to keep out of the public eye. But how, in heaven's name, she can move forward with her life while she's living in the shadows? I mean, who would want to hire her? Uh, it's um, you know her life basically has been been messed up badly by this but I'm thinking that I really do think there's a strong possibility that somewhere on the line something's going to happen because of the kinds of choices she makes in life. Either she is going to hurt someone else or she's going to end up dead. Um, I I think that's a distinct possibility. So uh, I, I certainly would would not to want to be in her position, and I don't think anybody would. It's a horrible place to be. And, I mean, you look at O.J. Simpson, another person that the vast majority of the public feel was guilty, um, and, you know, he he finally ended up in prison. So is that what will happen to Casey? Who knows? Now, Diane, there's two personal questions I want to ask, because I like asking authors this. Was there ever a case that you wanted to write about, but for one reason or another you never did? There have been a lot of cases that I have followed over time that um, never worked out. Um, there was like the, the the short murder and and this the little girl and her parents down in North Carolina, and the the the, the trail ended cold at the Canadian border, and they never had enough uh, evidence to be able to extradite the guy they suspected and. And if they couldn't extra, I mean, certainly couldn't have ever proved it. So there have been cases like that that um, until until the um, until there is an arrest, publishers no publisher wants to really touch a case, either that or until the case is fifty years old. They just don't don't want to be involved in it. Um, so you, it is. Um, 
uh, something that just isn't viable. I mean, I've had a lot of them that were never viable. No, no uh, real suspects came up. Nobody was did. Uh, there were a lot of questions, and a lot of suspicion, but no real proof. And in those cases, I haven't been able to write about. Now I'm going to put you on the spot. I'm going to finish with this. Mm-hmm. I I need two book recommendations. I want one book that you wrote that you're really going to recommend that I'm going to like, and one of your other true crime books that you didn't write that you enjoyed. Okay. Um, I would say Bitter Remains, which just came out in January. Okay. Um, <laughs> that That one is uh, a case that I still, after writing a whole book about it, find a hard time believing that it really happened the way it did. I mean, here you've got an actress and a musician killing an artist. I mean, uh, what kind of world is that? It was just so, so terribly bizarre. And um, what book would I recommend? True Crime book I think is really, really good. One of my favorites of all time is The Nutcracker by Shana Alexander. And what's the background on that? You know what? I read it 30 years ago, and I don't remember, but I do remember I love Diane, thank you so much. You were an absolute blast. And I'm going to read Bitter Remains, and then we'll come back on and we'll talk about that. How does that sound? That sounds super. Have a great day. Thank you so much. You too. Thank you, Mike. Bye-bye. Thank you. Diane Fanning, author of Mommy's Little Girl. The book is, you read it, and like she said, it was eight years ago. That still fascinates me, because when I'm reading the book, I'm like, wow, 2008? The trial was 2000? The trial was five years ago. Everyone, thank you for listening. Have a good day.